So tonight is, is, is the fourth of the sessions. I hope if you have been here for more than one, you've kind of got a sense for how the bits of the jigsaw are, are fitting together. Uh, I will do a short summary in a moment for those that perhaps missed a session or two, just to kind of put the bits together uh, until we do this, uh, before we do this final session. So um, just a little bit of the kind of the logic that lies behind some of what we're talking about here. An if, a then, and an and. Um, <clears throat> The claim that I've been making is that the challenge of Christian mission is not, at least in our part of the world, in our time, going to be fulfilled by us sitting in our churches and waiting for people to come to us. That the impulse of mission, almost by definition, is to be sent. It's to go. It's not to wait until people come. And so that's my if. If the mission challenge is to focus on sending out and not just attracting in. There, there, there's, there are some implications of that, if that is true. If the Church of Jesus Christ is actually defined as a community of people in mission, being sent as Jesus was sent into the world to continue the language, the gifts of Jesus' ministry, continuing to offer them to the world, if that's true, then there are some implications for the way that we do church. Firstly, there are some implications for those of us that are leaders in the church. The leadership challenge, if that's true, must be to deepen discipleship, not just to develop programs. Programs tend to be about getting stuff organised that people will come to. Discipleship is about preparing hearts that will go as distinct as sought as light into the world. So whether we're leading a children's group or whether we're leading a church or whether we're leading a home group or whether we're leading a household as parents of Christian children, our job is discipleship. It's to help form people and to be formed into the shape that actually will make a Jesus-shaped dent when we go into the world. If you see what I mean by that. Sounds a bit violent. It wasn't supposed to be violent, then. metaphor. It just kind of came to me. Probably, I'll never say that again. So, but you can see what I'm saying. That, that's the leadership challenge. So we need to release those of us that are leaders from a little bit, from at least some of the programmes and responsibilities which are do with keeping the show on the road that people might come to. And we need to think how we reimagine leadership at every level. I'm not just talking about, as it were, senior leaders, but at every level. Leadership is about making disciples. That's what children's work is there to do. That's what youth work is there to do. That's what the whole Christian family is there to do. It's to make Christ-like beings who go into the world in the shape of Jesus Christ. So, if that's true, then that's the leadership challenge. And there's a challenge for all of us, whether we're leaders or not, which is the discipleship challenge. Which is that discipleship requires intentional practices, not just passive attendance. Disciples, remember, are learners, they're apprenticeship, they're apprentices, to go back to the language of week one. They're people who are actively learning what it means to be like Christ, and they're committed to those practices which will actually form Christ in them. If being a passive attender of a local church made disciples, then we wouldn't need to be here tonight. Because there are zillions of people who are passive attenders of local churches, but we don't see, I would suggest, I'm not talking about this church, which is clearly the exception. Um, um, 
but we don't see widespread, a widespread discipleship movement emerging from the pattern of church that we have, which is largely, because we define church so strongly by Sunday gathering, a passive experience. So, if the mission challenge is to focus on sending out, not just attracting in, the leadership challenge must be to, disciple, to deepen discipleship, not just develop programs, and the discipleship challenge requires intentional practices, not just passive attendance. Dallas Willard said that no one becomes a disciple by accident. It's a choice you make to commit yourself. This is week two stuff, if you were here in week two. There's the idea that we give ourselves to the things that we can do to receive what only God can give. Those spiritual disciplines we talked about, or the means of grace, to use Wesley's language, there are things that we commit to in order to become the people that God is making us. I think I had on the screen way back then uh, that verse from Philippians, which always tries to hold together the balance of what we do and what God does. God is always at work. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because God is always at work in you to enable you to do and to want what he wants done. That partnership, we give ourselves to. And so we've talked about some of the things that we commit to by way of aspiration and by way of action. Um, The aspiration to be always growing in the love of God, to be seeking growth in knowing him better and better and better and better, receiving more of his spirit, more richly, more fully, always being hungry and thirsty for more. About using those disciplines, which are the means by which we reach out for that more and receive it into our lives. And last week we talked about that commitment of actually sharing Christ as everyday missionaries wherever we go. And I told you some stories. You missed the story week if you weren't here last time. Uh, I told you some stories about people, just all very ordinary people who, in my view, were exemplary everyday missionaries. Uh, that, of course, is not to set those things apart. It's not that we grow in disciplines and then we go out to do mission, but actually it's in serving that we grow. It's in giving that we receive. And a failure to give is a failure to grow. Uh, we limit uh, our own potential by not giving it away. So, so anyway, those are three actions and aspirations which we've covered each week, one, one at a time. Now, the, the question to start off with this time is how? Because I've never yet talked about those three things and found a room full of Christians that's been really hostile and antagonistic towards the idea that we should know God better, that we should pray and use the spiritual disciplines, and that we should share our faith. I've never yet had a room full of Christians rise up and call me a heretic on the basis of those three simple claims. Some people have said I've been long-winded, but nobody's called me heretical. It's taken you three weeks to say that. <clears throat> But the big question is, not are these good things, I think, I hope we'd all agree these are good things, but how on earth do we continue in them? Because I've got a hunch that many of us have made resolutions to ourselves and even to God, perhaps, to seek him more fully, to pray more regularly, to engage with scripture more faithfully, to share our faith uh, more passionately and more daringly. We've probably made those commitments in much the same way that I've made commitments regularly over the years to, to lose weight and to exercise. And we know what happens. Well, some of you may not again. Forgive me if I tar you here in Ken's Road with my Yates brush. 
But the problem is how to stay true to our own good intentions. How do we stay true to our own good intentions? That's, that's the challenge. In our hearts, we know we should really eat the fruit. But our hearts don't always rule us. Now you're all looking on the table in front of you. And some of you have been very virtuous because you're surrounded by orange peel. And I was thinking about that lovely bit of cake and mince pie you just down. But this is not to bring guilt. Okay, I had, had I known. Anyway. The serious question is, spiritually, how, how do we commit to this? How do we grow in this? How do we stay true to the good intentions that are represented by those three icons on the screen? And the answer, at least part, a major part of the answer is by doing it with others. By engaging on this way of life with other people who are similarly committed to it. It's the kind of the Weight Watchers Slimmer's World principle that, that you know, it, it, at least in theory, and in practice, in fact, when you're on the journey with others, it actually kind of motivates you and puts some constraints in place which enables you to carry on the journey that you're committed to. And I want to talk about a very particular way of journeying with others tonight, which is, I'm going to talk about things called bands. And I'm going to say why they're called that a little bit later, but, but for now... Um, I just want to explain why I'm talking about them at all. A band is just a very small group of friends who are committed to this journey of discipleship. I'll say much more as we go. The New Testament, if we were to read it um, afresh, with our eyes open, is full of one particular little Greek word, and it's the word alelon, which some of you know very well already means one another. The New Testament is full of one another language. There's a headline, one another, that Jesus says defines discipleship. John 13, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Because by this, everybody will know you're my disciples. There's something about the quality of our relationships together, which is about discipleship formation and establishing a Christ-like life. By the love that you have for one another, everyone will know you're my disciples. The New Testament kind of fleshes out what it means to love one another, because one of the problems, the great problems with the word love, is that we so readily import into it all of our Western ideas of what love is, what it means to love someone. And rather than allowing the Bible to define love to us, we define love to the Bible. And if we had more time, and I would wish to get controversial, we could go in all sorts of directions with that, you know, because God is a God of love, he wouldn't possibly dot, dot, dot. We define what love is, and then we try and make God conform to that pattern of love. But the New Testament fleshes out what it means to love one another by all kinds of different statements. You know what they are. Some of them will appear on the screen. This is the spec savers moment, for those of you sitting a bit further away. Uh, is it better like this, or like this? Um, Instruct one another, carry one another's burdens, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, live in harmony with one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, accept one another as Christ accepted you, serve one another, encourage one another, confess your sins to one another, build one another up, spur one another on towards love and good deeds, teach one another, admonish one another. That's just a, a sample. It's not all of them by any means. If you've got nothing better to do with your life, you can go home and look the rest up. But, but that's, that's a, a, a snapshot of some of the language that the New Testament uses to describe what it actually means to love one another. 
It means to give ourselves to one another in all kinds of ways that builds the other person up. The New Testament life is not a one-to-others life, but it's a one-another life. You understand what I mean? What we're doing here tonight, and what we often do in churches, is one to others. But actually, the New Testament doesn't say a great deal about that dynamic of one to others. It says a lot about one another. And there's a principle, which is a very simple principle. I'm most embarrassed to bring it to a place like Kendrick Baptist Church. But the principle is that if you want to one another, you must get together. It's hard to get, it's hard to one another with people who you're not with and don't spend time with and get to know. In fact, the New Testament says that even in the very, or suggests that even in the very early days of the Christian church, there was a tendency, for different reasons, I guess, than the tendency today, for Christians to drift apart. Do you know the verse, or the verse says, towards the end of Hebrews 10? Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly. Let's keep going with this thing. Let's stay true to our good intentions. Let's not give up. Let's press on towards Christ-likeness. Let's press on towards becoming a prayerful, witnessing people. Let's not give up. But then, what's the way of doing that? Let's consider how we may spur one another on. Another one another for you. Towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Can you see the connection there between carrying on with this great vision of becoming disciples of Jesus Christ and the importance of actually getting together and committing to that? Let's consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Spurring isn't always very comfortable according to any horse I've ever spoken to. but, But you have to be close to spur someone. Virtual spurring doesn't count. Jesus modelled this one another life. It's kind of what he did. He was always with others. But the others that... Well, he wasn't always... He was very often with others. Sometimes he withdrew from others. We dealt with that week two. This is week four. So Jesus spent a lot of time with others. But the others that he was with were not always in the same kind of relationship with Jesus. So, what do I mean by that? We read in the Gospels, don't we, that Jesus engaged with a lot of people who we might call followers. Crowds of people who followed him round, who were intrigued by his teaching, who admired his healing power or wanted to receive it for themselves. People who were engaged with him and, and started following him. There's quite a large crowd of followers. We know that within that large crowd of followers, there was a smaller number who were, in some way, committed, trusted disciples. 72, the beginning of Luke 10, suddenly appear from nowhere. Have you ever read Luke 10? Think, where did they all come from? <laughs> Something like 70 or 72. Uh, others, but clearly these were well-trained ground troops who were sent into the villages to prepare the way for Jesus to come and to announce the coming of the kingdom and to heal and, 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 and so on. There were, there were 72. But we know that somehow within the 72, there were 12 whom Jesus spent 
a significant amount of time investing into. He didn't get hung up on numbers. He didn't spend a lot of time with the crowds. And the quality of time that he spent with the crowds was not the quality of time he spent with the twelve. And within the twelve, you will know that there were three who were frequently or often mentioned as being a discrete group within the larger group of the twelve, which in turn was a group within the larger group of the seventy-two, and so on. The three were... That's it, yes, I'll interpret the tongues. Peter, James, and John, uh, who we're told in the Gospels at numerous times were invited with Jesus seemingly at critical moments in his ministry for a particular in-depth induction into what it meant to be his followers. For example, when Jairus' daughter dies and Jesus goes to heal her, it's Peter, James and John who alone, everybody else is shut out, but they're invited in to that place to see what happens when the Lord of life speaks to the death in the child. Imagine what that did to their faith to be present at that moment. Now we know it didn't kind of make them wonderful because there were still times when they failed but, but Jesus seemed to be wanting to invest something in these three by drawing them into that experience. We're told on the Mount of Transfiguration as we call it that Peter and James and John were there. They were invited to that prayer meeting to see how Jesus prayed and what happened when Jesus prayed. What happened when Jesus prayed is the Father was there and Moses and Elijah were there and this was this, this, so this is what real prayer looks like. Peter and James and John were shown what happens in spiritual intimacy. Peter, James and John were allowed to be with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying and sweating drops of blood and agonising and wrestling with his own humanity. If it's possible, Father, I don't want to go through with this, but nevertheless, despite what I want in my humanness, what you want is what I want to happen. They were allowed to witness that and hear that and participate in that. So within the 72, there were the 12. Within the 12, there were the three. Jesus was not afraid to invest in a few. And each dynamic has got a different resonance to it. There's different potential in each dynamic. 72, 12, 3. Jesus, it seems, understood modern learning theory better than many of us do. The way that he trained his disciples was quite consistent with a kind of a learning cycle model. In as much as he would um, teach them, he would let them hear what the kingdom is all about. He would let them see him doing it. He would let them uh, understand the secrets of the kingdom. He would teach them. But then he would let them loose to have a go. You go and do it. See what happens. But he wouldn't just abandon them. Sometimes delegation equals kind of abandonment. We just kind of let people go. He just didn't let them go. He sent them out. But then he had a debriefing session. He called them back and said, how did it go? And they said, oh, it's fantastic. It's wonderful. Even the demons submitted to us. And then he critiqued the debrief. None of this language is in the New Testament, but you'll find it. 
uh, more recent versions of this. Uh, I said, yes, it's great that the demon submitted to you, but, but actually the really important thing that you might have missed in your excitement is this, that your names are written in the Book of Life. So there was a kind of a learning cycle thing that was going on. Our discipleship training in churches is often, often doesn't look like this. Our discipleship training in churches often looks like a linear uh, one-to-others training course, the end of which we assume people have got it, so we just send them off and never ask how it's, how it's going. <clears throat> we need one another if we're going to grow as disciples, and we need to be in a particularly rich relationship with others. Because to grow as a disciple, you need to be in a position where you're honest with others. Honesty is a key to growth. Transparency is a key to growth. I'll come back to that thought a little bit later on. John Wesley, who I've quoted a few times in these sessions, famously once said, There is no such thing as a solitary Christian. He was critiquing the monastic tradition and asserting that actually it's quite easy to be holy when you're by yourself. You'd be surprised at how holy I can be when there's nobody else around. How spiritual I can kid myself that I am. And then I bump into somebody or somebody bumps into me or whatever. And I'm reminded that actually I'm not quite as holy as I thought I was. I need other people to gauge my holiness and to grow in holiness. Wesley said, went on to say, Solitary religion is not to be found in the gospel of Christ. Holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. <laughs> the gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. He had a way with words, didn't he? I've said that before. But holy adulterers, holy solitaries, both offensive in his ears. The point he made at the end there is not, as he's often been misquoted, talking about social religion as being social action. He's not saying that actually to be holy we need to go out and serve the poor. He did believe that, but that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is if we're going to grow in holiness, we grow in holiness in company with others. We need one another to grow in holiness. It's a one-anothering dynamic. And what Jesus in the 12 and the 72 and the 3, and what Wesley discovered is there's a kind of a spectrum of one anothering. All one anothering is not equal. Some kinds of one anothering happen in certain environments, other kinds of one anothering happen in other environments. So when multiple um, thousands of people started coming to faith in the 18th century, Wesley constructed different kinds of groups to receive them and to disciple them. He didn't use that language, but that's effectively what he was trying to do. He gathered them firstly into what he called societies, which are sort of congregation-sized groups for public teaching, for hymn singing, for public praying, to take bread and wine and so on. It's a bit like a congregational experience. Um, They were open to anybody, saved or not saved, um, and you're welcome to come along to the society meeting, typically on a Friday night. He recognised that that society meeting dynamic could only achieve a certain amount of one anothering. There's a level of life that you never get to in that size group. 
And so he instituted, actually here in Bristol for the first time, um, a smaller group which he called the class, which is a bit akin to a, a modern home group. And within that group, there was the potential for a deeper level, a more open level of one another. You could look other people in the eye now rather than look at the back of their heads and you could ask them how they were getting on. And you could encourage them in a personal way rather than just exhort them from the front, from the pulpit. So the class slash home group dynamic, 15 to 20 people, achieves more one-anothering than can happen in the big group even though you can do some one-anothering in the big group. You can greet one another with a holy kiss wherever. Not that I'm sure that's in your covenant, but um, maybe next year. Um, <coughs> but rebuking one another doesn't work too well after coffee on a Sunday morning meeting when somebody says, how are you? It requires a different level of dynamic, that kind of one another. And Wesley recognised that even in the class, there were shortcomings. And so he instituted a third level of group, which he called the band. The band was akin to Jesus' three. It was a smaller group. In Wesley's day, it was just five or six people, each of whom met with a single commitment, which was to watch over one another's souls. They were there for one another's spiritual growth and for that only. They weren't there to do Bible study. They weren't there to take communion. They weren't there to sing hymns. They weren't there to discuss the weather or the football. They were there... They couldn't have done that because it wasn't in the 18th century. But they, 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 they were there. I mean, there was weather, but not football. They, they were there simply and only to inquire after the state of one another's souls, to encourage one another in godliness, to help one another grow towards the fullness of Jesus Christ so that their lives could make a difference in the coal mines and the tin mines and the factories and wherever else they spent their, day, their lives back there in the 18th century. Now, whereas in our modern churches we do have kind of parallels to the first two groups, the society and the class, the congregation and the home group, seldom have I come across churches that have anything that looks very much like a Wesleyan band. And yet, there's a level of life and one anothering that you only get to in a small group of three or four people who are deeply committed to one another and willing to be honest and open and vulnerable with one another around their spiritual growth. So these are not therapy groups. They're not prayer groups. They're not discussion groups. Um, one of the challenges of defining a band, which I will try and do as we go through the evening, is, is to try and help them see what they're not. Because we've all got experience of different kinds of small groups. And, and a band doesn't quite fit any of them, although there are elements of other kinds of groups in there too. But my suggestion to you, my proposal to you, is that unless we are in these kinds of dynamic relationships, we will not stay true to our own good intentions. Over the years I have run, overseen, participated in numerous home groups... And I know that even in a home group dynamic, a midweek group of a dozen or so people in someone's front room, lovely, valuable though it is, there's a level of life you never get to. You can still do the I'm fine thing. You can still wear the mask <coughs> and kid people if you want to. 
The problem, of course, with wearing a mask is that I will never grow. I can only grow to the level of the mask that I'm wearing. So if you ask me how I am and I say I'm fine, all you can do for me is to affirm me in my deceit. Because you don't know anything else about it. The fact that I haven't prayed for six months or I feel God's a million miles away or I've never shared my faith or whatever. All the things that we've been talking about, all those things can be absent from my life and you don't know if I'm in a kind of relationship with you where I can kid you. It's only when the mask comes off that I can experience and you can experience together the kind of transparency that leads to actual growth and to deal with the issues that are there, not the mask that I want you to see. So we're going to kind of get into that a little bit more in a minute, but I want you to think, if you would, for a moment, I'll shut up and let you talk for a minute, uh, this one another spectrum idea. What can be achieved in those different sizes of group? How does each size of group enable the one another life? And what I'm not saying is one's good, one's bad, but I'm just saying that they're different and distinct. So how does each size of group, the congregation... Oh, that wasn't supposed to happen. Oh, there they are. The congregation, the home group, and the band, how do they enable the one another life? Perhaps you'll find in your discussion in some groups, some things can be achieved, in others, other things. Um, but I would suggest to you, unless you're going to convince me otherwise, that no one size group will achieve it all. So, anyway, have a little think and discussion about what you think uh, about that. Ask you to draw your conversations to a close for a moment. Just a little bit of feedback to help me see which way your thinking's going, which way the wind's blowing. So I put some of those one and others back on the screen again, if you remember the, that wasn't the question. The question was at each of those levels, how do the one and others work? Um, so in terms of the congregational level, what was your thinking about? how the one-anothering thing happens there. Do feel free to talk out loud, otherwise no one can hear you. So. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about the encouragement of actually having lots of people around you. Yep. You were there as a corporate faith. Um, yep. You might not encourage each other personally, but actually yep. corporately. Um, yeah. Yep, good. Yep, being part of a larger group is really encouraging and stimulating in and of itself. Yep, good point. Let me have a reflection on the one another in, in the larger group. Yep, yep, good. So uh, having a little conversation with Mark at the military about that one of the distinctives of Christian community is just that, that idea of diversity, that, that you know, different backgrounds, different, different everythings, either slave or free, male or female and all of that, uh, expressed, which in a much smaller group isn't always the case. So there's something of that almost prophetic statement about what church is, um, which in and of itself, again, I think is encouraging. And, and uh, yeah, so thanks for that. Let's go down a level to the, the mid-sized group, the kind of dozen to 15 people meeting in someone's front room. Um, 
whether or not you have them here, I'm sure you're familiar with that dynamic of, of, of meeting. Um, what, what's, what's the kind of take on one anothering that happens there? I'm just beginning to wonder whether I made the question on the screen clear enough. <laughs> So there can be a greater sense of focus? Yeah, focus, but also, um, you know, really perhaps uh, helping us find out what it is that, that we do really want to uh, believe God for. Yeah, so there's a personal groundedness, isn't there, that can happen in, in that kind of mid-sized group that doesn't always happen on Sunday because it's kind of mixed ability teaching on Sunday. So you know, there's lots of different people. But in a small group, you can really be more personal about what's God saying to me and work with that on that with others. Yep, good. So there can be an element of teaching one another in that, in that sense. Thanks for that. So let's move on to the third level then. Um, maybe this is what you spent all your time talking about. So sooner or later I'm going to find out what you talked about. Um, if I keep asking enough questions, uh, the football, which Manchester club's winning? Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so that smaller dynamic then, what was your thinking at this stage uh, about the kind of one anothering relationship that happens in those smaller groups? So the idea of, of greater challenge um, is absolutely right. Yeah, that's good. And I think the other point you made sort of was in passing at the end is very important as well, that um, th- that kind of relationship can't be imposed. So the level of relationship that happens in a band kind of dynamic has to be something that the people in the band are seeking, not you know, some great new weeds that the church leaders have come up with and now we're all going to do bands, because there has to be a hunger for that level of life to actually make it work. It's a bit like forcing someone to go for counselling. It just doesn't work, you know, they need to want to be there. Um, not that it is counselling, I shouldn't have said that really because now you've got a wrong idea what I'm saying. It's nothing like counselling, but the metaphor. Uh, anything else about the, yes, thanks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
good, good point. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute, so I won't say any more about it. But yeah, well observed. That's definitely, definitely right. Yes? I think you said a similar thing, actually, we, we talked about um, accountability. Mm-hmm. Because at that level, uh, you do bear certain responsibility for each other. Uh, whereas um, in a larger congregation, or even in a home group, you can sit there and not say anything and, and uh, not engage. Mm-hmm. But in a very small group, you, you, you tend not to yeah, exactly. Yes, and the smaller the group, the less the option exists for you. Yes, yeah, very good point. There's an element also of commitment yes. to each level. So the level to the, uh, the band group has got to be the greatest because there are only four or five people in it, and one group doesn't turn up. That's very obvious to not there. It's much less obvious in a small group that it's almost impossible to see your absence. Mm. Although I'm happy to watch this one. He does, yes. I've seen his black book, if you're in it. Yeah, yeah. I'm aware of some But I think that was that level of commitment, and that commitment can also be within the small group environment, can be hugely positive also. So, uh, you know, if you're in a home group where people drift in and out of it, then you never get to know the group. Because if all the same people come every week or every fortnight, then your technology will increase and your awareness of them. Yeah, thanks thanks for that. And, and uh, it's kind of a little byproduct of what you were saying. You do need to be committed, but one of the beauties of a band is because it's very small, you can be very flexible about when and where they meet. So, with the larger groups that tend to be programmed, you know, it should be like a Wednesday evening or a Sunday morning. Whereas with a smaller group, you've got more flexibility, which actually enables a greater commitment. So you could say, if it works for us, we'll meet breakfast Saturday morning or, or whatever, and you could meet a different time next time without the whole programme having to be rearranged around you. So, so yeah, the commitment's important, but the commitment does actually, the, the, the dynamic does also uh, increase flexibility. That was a bit of a trade-off there. Yeah, let me just keep moving, because um, you, 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 thank you for talking. <laughs> I was beginning to worry. Um, um, so, some of these things have already begun to open up, but just to nudge it forward a little bit more, um, what does a band actually do? What, what makes it distinct? What's the practice of being in a band? Um, and so I'm not particularly hung up on the language, it's just that I'm using that at the moment. It's got a kind of Wesleyan link back, and, and, and Wesley himself nicked it from uh, a man called Count Zinzendorf, uh, who actually is a very um, timely story. I guess some of you will know the story of Count Zinzendorf, I imagine. But he was a very wealthy German Anabaptist in the early 18th, late 17th century. And at that time, there was a mass exodus of refugees across Europe. And he opened his estate to them. They were Christians fleeing persecution from Moravia. And he opened his estate and allowed them to build a village, which became called Hernhut. And uh, this village of Christians um, was an incredible spiritual phenomenon, this refugee community. Um, and they began a, a, a prayer meeting. He instituted this prayer meeting, which lasted a hundred years. They had this kind of cycle of prayer, this rotor of prayer, that just kept going on generation after generation. They, they, they sent missionaries all around the world, um, but they formed their life around two sizes of small group, 
a mid-sized group that they called a choir. I don't know why. Um, and a small group which they called a band. And Wesley happened to cross the Moravians when he was on his way to America to uh, become a missionary to the Indians. And he talked on the boat to the Moravian missionaries and they told him about bands. And so when he introduced his own small groups, he nicked their language. You probably didn't want to know any of that, but this is just sad things interest me. So that's why we're calling them bands. Anyway, it's got a very long historic pedigree uh, in a part of the Christian world that I certainly feel at home in, and I'm guessing many of us here to with the Anabaptist Moravian tradition. Um, so anyway, what are fellowship bands? What I've been doing for the last five years or so of my life is kind of working on a project called the Inspire Project. Um, it's been funded by the National Methodist Church because they're obviously rediscovering their own roots in all of this stuff, but trying to find a way of rediscovering some of the genius of Wesley's thinking around discipleship in a way that makes sense to 21st century people. So we've kind of reinstituted this idea of bands. We want to advocate and and see them uh, mushrooming because we feel that they're a missing dynamic, a, a very important dynamic in this whole business of making mission-shaped disciples. So our take on bands are these. That a fellowship band is a group of three or four friends who meet at least once a month. So we don't have many rules, but the only rule really, we have a lot of wisdom, but only one rule. The rule is only three or four people. Um, you have less than three, there's clear dangers of dependency and all kinds of other stuff kind of happening. You have less wisdom uh, in the room when you meet. Uh, if you have more than four, it just takes too long. And the pe- each person doesn't have enough time to really share what's going on in their life. The rule of thumb for a band meeting is that each person has about 20 minutes to half an hour of time to talk about their own progress in discipleship. So if you've got four people and each person's got 20 minutes to half an hour, you've probably got about as much meeting as you want to handle once a month. The reason they're monthly rather than weekly is because the whole idea of that learning cycle that I put up earlier is that you're doing stuff in between the band meetings which you're reflecting on and which then become the subject matter for your discussion at band. If you have a band meeting every week, the way life is, uh, it feels like nothing much has happened since you met last time. Once a month, once every three weeks or whatever, um, seems to be about the right frequency for, for, for a band meeting. And they meet for these two things. These are the two kind of headline things. One of these words has already appeared. The first thing is they meet for mutual accountability. Accountability is a scary word these days um, because people have it, so it has connotations of being scrutinised, being put in a chair and someone's shining a spotlight in your eyes. Um, our definition of accountability is a place where I am willing to give an honest account of how things are going in my walk with God. The onus in accountability is on me, not on you. In other words, this is, doesn't work because you grill me. It works because I come to my band meeting ready and willing to be honest with you. In fact, if I don't, however much you grill me, we just won't get anywhere anyway. You can grill me all you like, but if I'm not going to be honest, then we won't get anywhere. So the band dynamic rests on the fact that I'm willing to come to give an honest account of how it's been with me and God since we last met. We share the ups and the downs, the joys and the sorrows. The purpose of the band is to focus on what we've been talking about in weeks one, two, and three. That's the agenda. So when I say how it's going, I don't mean how it's going at work, I don't mean how it's going with my health, I don't mean how it's going with my wife, 
I mean, how's it going in my growth in the love of God, in my use of the spiritual disciplines, and in my attempts to be an everyday missionary? Now, those other things may break the surface. It may be that my attempts to use the spiritual disciplines are being stymied because my wife turns the stereo on first thing in the morning and I can't hear myself think. She doesn't, incidentally, but it could be. In other words, there may be others, but the, focus, the reason, I'm, what I want you to help me do is to help me to pray, to help me to be an everyday missionary, to help me to grow in the love of God. If we need to deal with other issues to do that, then let's do that. But this isn't a kind of a rounded, whole life accountability thing. What I want you to hold me accountable for are those three things we've been talking about, the guts of mission-shaped discipleship. My love for God, my receipt of his Holy Spirit into my life, my use of the means of grace, and my ability and willingness to be an everyday missionary. The second thing that abounds for, we use this language of spiritual direction, which is helpful to some, unhelpful to others. Um, if you're familiar with the, the, the gift, the skill of spiritual direction, many people have a spiritual director, an individual that they go to from time to time. The work of a spiritual director is to help the person that comes to them discover what God is up to in their life at the moment. So it's not to give them direction. That's why the title is kind of not 100% helpful. It's not to say, you should be doing this. It's actually to try and work out which direction God is moving that person in. So the outcome of a band meeting should be a sense in each individual that they've got a slightly clearer idea, at least, of how God is moving them on in their, those different areas of their discipleship. The whole thing works on a kind of a rhythm that I've already alluded to a little bit. When I had that image of the way that Jesus trained the disciples on the screen, that rhythm of learning. So we talk about three R's. Um, the R, first R is reflect. That in between band meetings, we're trying to think, we're trying to pray, we're trying to reflect on how we are getting on with God in those four areas that we're talking about here. The simplest little resource that we produce to help people do that is this little bookmark, on which there are a few questions under each of the headings of the sessions that we've looked at over these four weeks. So there's a set of questions about how I'm getting on in growing in God's love, a set of questions about how I'm getting on with using the disciplines, and so on. So what we encourage people to do is just stick that bookmark in their Bible, back pocket, glove compartment, as long as you don't read it when you're driving, um, or wherever. Um, So that occasionally you're just running your eye down it, and it's reminding you of your commitment to be a person who's living this way of life. But you're also reflecting on how it's going. It's a simple way that God speaks in the way that God often speaks, through the niggle, the holy niggle. I'm not going to read that question again because it's making me feel too upset. What are you saying, God? Um, that kind of idea. Now, there is a kind of a, a, um, a fuller version of this in a booklet. So there are lots more questions if you think this is just too inadequate for the depth of need that you have. Um, but again, the booklet itself is still built around these four areas of what we call the way of life, those four things in the middle there. So we reflect on how we're doing, we go to our band, second R, to relate to our friends, and we talk about how we're doing, and we let them probe a little bit, and we give an account, and we talk and pray about it. I'll say more in a minute what, what happens in a band meeting. At the end of the band meeting, what happens is 
we try to encourage one another to name something that's arisen out of the band meeting that we want to go away and try and do. So there's a third R is respond. How am I going to respond to what I feel God is saying at the moment about this aspect of my discipleship? Now that's the level which often the other groups don't get to. I would subscribe to. You might say that a home group sometimes perhaps does the first two R's. We kind of think about how life is going, either intentionally or just by default. And then we go to the group and we talk about it. What seldom happens is that kind of little bit of grit in the oyster, that little bit of intentionality, which arises from saying, before we meet again, I'm going to have a go at inviting my next door neighbour over coffee, getting up ten minutes earlier to pray, trying to, whatever, whatever it is, you know, could be any one of a number of things across that spectrum of things we've talked about. So the kind of relationship that we're in, in the band, it's not a kind of a leader, a one to others. It's a one another thing. One of the metaphors I sometimes use is, is of fellow travellers. We're all trying to journey towards the same goal. We're trying to journey towards Christ-likeness. We agree that central to becoming like Christ is growing in God's love, using the means of grace, becoming an everyday missionary, and meeting together in our bands. And we're trying to work out what on earth that means and what it looks like in each of our lives as time goes by. We're fellow travellers. And some people in the band meeting have walked this way before, so they've got a bit of wisdom of the journey to share. Some people know how to read the map, so they've got a bit of kind of technical wisdom to share. Some smart Alex have even got a kind of sat-nav thing, uh, you know, an, an online gadget. Uh, so, so in other words, we kind of pull our various bits of wisdom, insight, experience, knowledge, spiritual gifting in order to help us find the way forward. It's that sort of feel. I've talked about accountability earlier and transformation to transparency. That's my picture. Um, somebody mentioned trust. And uh, that's a really important aspect. Was it you, Pete? Mentioned trust. Am I, am I, you are P. Phil. Phil. I knew it started with P. I was trying to be clever and it never pays off, does it? Okay, there you go. Phil, um, I think it was you, but somebody mentioned the idea of trust and you were quite right to do that because this does require trust. It's a risky thing to confess your sins to one another. But perhaps it's risky not to. If when we've confessed our sins to one another, we'll be healed. It's a risky thing to admit where we're really at with God sometimes. Much safer to wear the mask on a Sunday morning and be fine. And yet, as I've said, wearing the mask doesn't actually lead to growth. It just leads to being cemented into our deceit. How do we build trust together? Trust is a vital thing, and I, I would often think trust is a bit like a kind of a delicate flower. It, it takes quite a while to grow, it's very fragile, and it's easily squashed. And I think within the band, what we've discovered is, uh, it's not a shock, is that we don't expect that maximum levels of trust to be there in meeting one. In other words, no one comes into a band meeting usually and just dumps everything on, on the table. Usually we kind of feel our way forward a little bit. But there are things that we can do to encourage that kind of trusting relationship which makes a band work. Obvious words. We need to be in a, a loving relationship with one another. 
the kind of love that's described in 1 Corinthians 13 that doesn't keep a record of wrongs and so on and so forth. We need to commit to that level and that nature of relationship, that headline one another, love one another as Jesus has loved us. If we're in that sort of relationship, then we're more likely to be vulnerable and open. We need to accept what others might bring to the meeting and feel that we can say what we need to say and still be accepted. That's one of the most liberating things for a human being. To be able to say how things really are and be accepted anyway. I mentioned last time when we talked about witnessing, one of the reasons we don't witness and share our faith so much is because we're afraid of rejection. One of the reasons we don't open up about ourselves is because we could be afraid of rejection. What if I tell them what's really going on? What I really think about God? Or whatever. Well, we've got to be people that would accept what is bought and even affirm. Affirm, say that's okay. That's fine. I, 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 I sat with somebody once who got himself into a real mess in his life and he had an affair. A young man, not long married. And uh, he'd gone round a number of Christians imagining that he was the only one and he'd gone to a number of Christian leaders and he was highly encouraged and also slightly shocked that most of the people that he went to said I've been through that too, it's awful isn't it now think what you will of that I think that there's an honesty there's an affirmation in actually saying where you are is wrong but you're not the only person that's been there there's a way out of this. This isn't the end. And somehow in our bands we need to encourage that level of honesty, affirmation and accountability. We need to model risk-taking. One person needs to be willing. I'm sure you spotted that in small groups. When one person opens up, other people will need to open up too. But we just need to kind of model that and be that person that takes the first step. And somebody mentioned this as well. A lot of these things are obvious, I know. But we do need to be people that keep confidences. Nothing squashes trust more quickly than having got so far up the ladder of sharing and suddenly you realise that somebody has been... Of course it was only for prayer. But, but sharing uh, what you've been saying in confidence. So, so there are a few basic rules. And uh, should, when people start bands, we give them... Well, if they register their band, we give them a little pack... If you don't register the band, you're just on your own. Um, there's a little booklet in the pack, which is, says meeting as a fellowship band, and inside the little booklet, there's some stuff about kind of the ground rules, some of which are on the screen. Uh, just uh, simple stuff uh, to kind of get you going. So in a band meeting, what actually happens? Four things. You get together with your three or four. Remember, the focus of your meeting is those four things. I keep saying that because I've often had the comment over the last five years where we're still meeting but I'm not sure we're really doing it right. And I say, well, what do you mean by doing it right? Because in one sense, it kind of goes where it goes. They say, well, we're not talking about all that discipleship stuff anymore but we're, you know, we're having a great time having coffee and cake and it's really lovely and we're really building deep friendship. And I think, well, that's fantastic. Who doesn't want to be in a small group that drinks coffee, eats cake and makes friends? But you're not being a band, because that's not what a band's about. A band is about meeting to encourage one. You get bored with this, I know you probably already are. Seeking to grow in God's love, using the means of grace, becoming an everyday missionary, and committing to this level of relationship in a band that's going to hold that.
together. That's what a band is for. So when you start your band meeting, the first thing you do is you just spend a little bit of time reminding yourself that God is in the room. So you'll centre yourself in his presence. You do that however you want to do it. You might listen to a CD track. You might read a poem. You might read a psalm. You might just pray. You might light a candle. Whatever goes, goes. But the important thing about a band meeting and the deep belief about a band meeting is that God is in the room. That there is a spiritual connection that's happening as God's people join together in even twos or threes or fours. So that's the point of that. And then one person starts. So uh, we say, okay, who's going to start this time? And Pete says, I'll start this time. Okay, Pete, how's it been going? So Pete shares something for four or five minutes about how it's been going with him and God around these elements of the way of life since we last met. We don't sit there and grill him and, and read him 16 questions, which he has to answer correct before we allow him back into the church next Sunday. That's kind of the way Wesley did it, incidentally. Um, uh, but that's not the way we do it. Um, uh, basically, you've used this before you get to the band, or something like this, before you get to the band meeting, to think about how it is with you and God around these themes. So when you start, you, you just start where you want to start. Actually, what I've been thinking about this month is this question about showing God's love in practical ways. I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure I'm really doing that at the moment. I wonder if this counts. I try to do... So there's a bit of a conversation that Pete starts by just sharing something. How am I doing with the way of life? Then, we all kind of get involved with Pete's issue that he's brought to the meeting. And we begin to converse together around the issue that he's brought to the meeting. The goal is trying to help Pete to discover what God is saying to him about the issue that he's brought. One of the best ways to do that is to keep asking Pete questions. So one of the great skills in a band meeting is to ask more questions than giving answers. The great temp- some of us are problem solvers and we're fixers. And when somebody comes up with a problem, we say, well, you ought to do this. And some of us are spiritual fixers and we say, well, it says in the Bible, you ought to do this. But that may or may not be what God is saying to Pete at the moment. So what you do in this conversation is you try and keep Pete in the hot seat by saying, well, what about this? Have you thought about it like that? What about this? What does this Bible verse mean to you? This happened to me once, but how does that connect with what you're saying? Always throwing it back as a question so that Pete is going to think his issue through with my and our help. You use all kinds of spiritual tools, scripture, life wisdom, spiritual gifts, pictures, images, prophetic words, deep listening to what God is saying as well as what the other person is saying, and of course prayer. So sometimes in my band we get to a point and say, hey, we're going to run around in circles here, let's just stop and let's just pray and let's just see if God speaks into this situation. But Pete has, but he has in very few other places, he has half an hour of time when people are really focusing on him and helping him focus on God. No other agenda, no other responsibilities, no other commitments. It's a privileged <coughs> bit of time. So after that third Elements. The final thing relates to the respond thing. We're now using the letter C. You see how sophisticated I can be. Um, but the respond becomes commit, uh, which is, what will you go away and do? Pete, we've just been spending 20 minutes talking about this issue. What have you heard? What do you think God's saying to you? And here's the question. What do you want us to ask you next time when we meet? That's a great question. 
what do you want us to ask you next time when we meet? Uh, so we, uh, and then okay, so we pray for Pete, and then we move on. And it's it's uh, Mike, Mark. Mark. <laughs> right, first letter. You see, you see the trends here, can't you? Yes, <laughs> Mark. So it's Mark's turn now, and so we say, okay, Mark, what's on your heart this time? Mark shares. We share together, we keep asking questions, we pray, we have spiritual gifts, we have a picture, a word, or whatever. And then we say to Mark, okay, Mark, what's God saying to you in this? What do you want us to ask you next time? That's why bam, it's simple, it's simple. simple. It's, nothing, it's not rocket science. But it never happens anywhere else unless you make it happen. What happens at the next band meeting is that everybody's on the edge of their seat and they're wanting to know what happened with Pete and what happened with Mark. I'm not going to go any more names tonight. Uh, uh, how did it go when you tried to talk to your next door neighbour? Okay, you've got some other stuff to share because life's moved on and you've been reflecting a bit more, but we want to know what happened last time. No one ever asked that question on a Sunday morning. No one ever asked that question, usually in a home group. Here's a place where the cycle continues to turn. Accountability. Intentionality. How are you doing? And really, it's as simple as that. I've been in the band now for five years with three other church leaders. Between us, we've got about 7,000 years worth of Christian ministry experience. In other words, we're all very old. Um, But each of us, interestingly, without anyone suggesting this, in different times have said, I've never been in a group like this in all of my long life. I've been looking, one of them said, I've been looking for something like this all my life, but I've never actually found it. See, we've all been in stacks of meetings with an agenda or a, a leader or, or whatever. But actually, this is a different dynamic, this kind of meeting. Um, and each, for each of us, we would say it's one of the most important things we do. We always make time, we spend half a day um, once a month together. And, and we unless we're out of the country, it would be top priority to, 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 to keep to that. Um, in, a, in the church at Thornbury, we've got 20 of these groups running. Some of them are dysfunctional. <laughs> Some of them are highly functional. I'm not wanting to pretend that everything in the garden is lovely. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Um, uh, and so on. The church uh, in uh, Frampton Cottrell, in my one of my band members is a guy called Steve. He's the minister at Frampton Cottrell, and he's got 17 bands, I think, working in his church. So we're seeing this as a really important missing dynamic in the life of a local church in terms of intentional, accountable disciple-making. And, um, yeah, so I've explained what it is. So another couple of questions for you to consider. What value can you see in participating in a fellowship band? If any, not make any assumptions. What value can you see, and what questions does that idea leave you with? So, where you go. I'm going to have to interrupt because uh, time is getting on, and uh, I don't want to keep you too far beyond the agreed end time. But we are in the end times. The eschaton is at hand. Um, but any, any quick responses to either of those questions? Um, any questions that you'd like to sort of throw at me whilst I'm here? Um, or any, any observations that you have about the value or otherwise of being in a band? Go. Um, I think it's really important to 
Yes. So we wonder about the second question. Yes. Uh, about um, how do you set up a group? Yes. Um, and is it people who are friends? But more importantly, how do you ensure that somebody in that group has got the skills to follow the questions that you're asking? You know, make sure we keep in terms of the topic and don't just get distracted because it's very easy to shift off topic. Yes. Yes, it is. Good, good. Uh, two or three good questions there altogether. Um, uh, so, how you set up bands? Generally, in churches where I've helped people do this, we've had a twin track approach. So, on the one hand, we've encouraged people to form their own bands. So, once people have understood what a band is and how it works, um, then we would encourage, say, okay, go away and see if you've got two or three friends that would like to join you in a band who are committed to this way of life and who understand what it's all about, so self-forming. Alongside that, the second track, is that if there are people who would like to in a band but can't find two or three friends within a band, have a word with Pete or Malky or whoever, and they will try and put people together in appropriate groupings. So there's kind of a both-and sort of thing happening there. How do you stay on track? Um, you help one another stay on track. Um, you use the materials for a period of time until they become second nature. So you just the bookmark. You know, it, it, it's just a reminder that actually we're here for this particular purpose. And we would also say set a band up for six months and then have an honest review about how it's gone, which is a chance to say it's not working for me or it's great, but we've lost the focus. We need to get back on track or, or whatever comes out of that that review. So we would. We would certainly say that. And the other thing is, although these would be sort of long-term groups, that's the goal. I mean, I've been in mind for five years, as I said. It's not a life sentence. So if it, if, it, if it doesn't work, then you just have to say, actually, this isn't quite... And some of the bands at Thornbury, for example, haven't worked. And so people just said, this isn't for different reasons what I'd hoped it would be. Or not. You know, sometimes one person gets it, the other two don't, or whatever. And you just have to manage that. You, know, you work with... The specificity of each band on that. Does that kind of nibble at some of those questions anyway? Anybody else got anything else they want to throw in, throw up? Yes? So we were wondering if you were at a house group, say, of it, no, brilliant. I, I, I love the lateral thinking and creative thinking. It's happening. You know, but that's that's really good. As long as all those eight people want to be in a band, obviously, then then yes. If you're in a group which could subdivide into bands for some of its life, then for all sorts of reasons, the relationships are in place. Um, you, you, you're already accustomed to going out at that time to that place, and so on and so forth. Uh, it's not an extra meeting, as you said. So, so yeah, if, if there is a, a house group or a men's breakfast, another church has a men's breakfast group that had been meeting but feeling that they want to do something that, that kind of sharpened their spiritual life a bit more, so having had breakfast, they then get into bands. Um, there's another place where there are three married couples who enjoyed getting together socially and they said, well, why don't we form bands? So they had their meal together and then the three women would go into one room and three men into another room and they'd have a band meeting. Bands don't have to be single gender, but we kind of think there's a bit of wisdom in maybe thinking of them as single gender, but there's no, that's one of the bits of wisdom, not law. The only law is three or four. The rest is wisdom. Uh, yeah, so, so yes, by all means, be creative with what you've got so it doesn't become one more thing. But the fact that they only meet once a month 
and still work at that frequency, it does mean that it's not a hugely onerous extra thing if that's indeed what it, what it becomes. Any other quick questions while I'm here to answer? We were wondering, um, since it's been happening at, your, at the church, yes. what, is there evidence of it? Is there anything to show for it? Um, yes, a lot, a lot of people would say that, 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 that they're more confident in their faith, they're um, more confident in sharing their faith, they are praying more regularly. Um, so both individually and when they meet as, as bands, you know, I, I, I can't give you a story that says revivals come to Thornbury. I hope, I mean, I hope I would love to give you that story. And part of me would love to pretend that's true, but, you know, it's not. Um, so, so the reality is that there are good stories from people that are in bands. Um, but there isn't a glory story that suddenly says Thornbury's been taken for Christ because of this. Um, but it's certainly for most people, you know, but people, you will, everyone knows, we vote with our feet. If it's not working, we just give up. We don't keep committing, to, particularly to something like this, if it's not achieving goal. And the fact that the majority of bands are still running makes me believe that there is there's something being achieved. Stephen, who I mentioned, who runs the church in Frampton Cottrell, so he runs it, what a ghastly phrase, but he, he is the minister of the church in, in Frampton. He is actually doing a master's degree at the moment, and his dissertation is actually researching what's happening in his bands and what the effect is. So there'll be a little bit more of... Slightly more empirical research that we can report back on in time, but at the moment it's too soon for that kind of research to have been done. At the moment, it's just anecdotal. One last, who'd like the last question? What an honour! The last question in this series. Is there anybody who would like to have that honour? If not, I'll shut up and hand over to Pete. They go. They want to go home. Oh no! I mean, mentoring is a word that is used to describe all kinds of different activities these days, isn't it? It's one of those umbrella words that means different things to different people. In one sense, this is a kind of peer mentoring. Um, the dis- distinction possibly might be that mentoring, as I understand it, would be slightly more holistic and be intentionally looking at more things than the band, which is focused on this commitment to a way of life. But in terms of the practices, there are probably quite a lot of similarities. Thank you very much, folks. You've been very polite. And, uh, really appreciate uh, your interest in this. And if you did want to follow up, uh, we've got Inspire has a website, inspiremovement.co.uk, or it might be .org.uk, but just play around with those words. <laughs> no, 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 it's not. There's no UK. It's just .org. That's it. Inspiremovement.org. I knew it was wrong when I wrote it. Inspiremovement.org because we've got kind of things happening in America and we, the UK thing didn't work over there for some reason. So, Inspiremovement.org is is the website. Peace.